Hello, everyone. What is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct, you guys. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah, and I am your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here on Wednesdays on the podcast, as well as on Thursdays on YouTube, and you are not going to want to miss it. Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's case, today is a crazy one. Today we are talking about Mary Bell. And there's not too much that I can say about Mary Bell without giving the entire case away. So with that being said, we are going to jump right on into it today. Mary Bell was born on May 26th, 1957 in Corbridge, England to her mother, Elizabeth McCricket, and her stepfather, William Bell. Now growing up, Mary did not have the easiest childhood by any means. She was very much neglected and very much unwanted from a very early age, really ever since the day she was born, because right after her mother gave birth to her and the hospital staff placed Mary with Elizabeth, Elizabeth completely freaked out and yelled at them and told them, quote unquote, to take that thing away from me. So from a very young age, Mary did feel unwanted, really for the majority of her life. And Elizabeth had Mary when she was only 17 years old, and that wasn't even her first child at that point. At that point, Mary also had an older sibling. Now, along with that, Mary's mother was also a very well-known sex worker in that area, and she spent a lot of time away from the house, traveling and working to make ends meet, so she really wasn't there to supervise or watch or raise her children at all. And so because of that, the children spent most of their time under the loose supervision of Mary's stepfather, William. And again, William is not Mary biological father. It's actually uncertain by everyone who Mary's biological father is. She's never known who that man is. So because of that, the only real father figure in her life was William. And William wasn't the greatest influence either. William had an arrest record that consisted of charges of armed robbery and assault. He was also a very violent alcoholic. However, again, it was the only father figure that Mary ever knew. And Mary got into a lot of accidents as a child, accidents that were inflicted on her by Elizabeth, which more so added into the neglect that Mary was experiencing. For example, when Mary was only three years old, Elizabeth actually dropped her out of a first story window. And along with that, on a different occasion, Elizabeth also gave Mary a surplus of sleeping pills. And if that wasn't enough on a different occasion, Elizabeth had actually sold Mary. She sold Mary to a mentally unstable woman who wasn't able to have any children of her own. And Elizabeth just sold her. Now this resulted in Mary's older sister having to go and retrieve Mary back from this woman. And once she did that, she then took Mary back home to Elizabeth. Now, this was not a case of Elizabeth had no help around her or Elizabeth was doing this all on her own because there were many people in Elizabeth's life that viewed the neglect that Mary was experiencing and told Elizabeth that they would be more than happy to take full custody of Mary because it seemed to be in the best interest of everyone. However, Elizabeth refused to do so. She wanted Mary to remain in her primary care. Now, 
when Mary got into elementary school, it was very difficult for her to make friends because she had an incredibly violent personality. She would constantly get into fights with different students, boys and girls, and her go-to move, so to speak, when getting into these fights would be to try and suffocate her classmates. Another tactic that Mary liked to use was pouring sand down different people's throats. Like when you went out onto the playground and you had a sandbox, Mary would take that sand and try to suffocate people by pouring the sand down their throats and shoving it into their mouths. Now, even though Mary had a very hard time making friends, she did have one friend in particular, and this friend's name is Norma Bell. Now, even though Mary and Norma coincidentally share the last name, they are not related. It was just a coincidence that the two of them share this last name. Now, Norma and Mary were very much like the Bonnie and Clyde duo that no one wanted or needed. They definitely caused a lot of trouble together. They were each other's sidekicks, but Mary definitely took the more dominating role in the friendship. Mary was kind of the one that led the charge between the two of them and dictated what they did. And Norma was kind of along for the ride, very much more in the submissive role. Doesn't mean she wasn't equally as responsible. However, it just means that she more so did what Mary told her to do. For example, on May 11th, 1968, there was a three-year-old boy that was found wandering a road nearby where Mary lived. And a bystander had actually found this three-year-old boy and pulled him to the side and asked him what was wrong because he had a very clear cut on his head. Now, this three-year-old boy proceeded to tell this person that he had been playing with Norma and Mary on top of an air raid shelter when Mary had pushed him off of the air raid shelter onto the ground. Now, it was a seven-foot drop. However, it also resulted in a giant cut in his head. Then that same night, there was a police report filed by the parents of three young girls who claimed that Norma and Mary had attempted to strangle their daughters earlier that day in the sandbox. Now, police picked up Norma and Mary and questioned them a little bit and questioned them about the three-year-old boy as well as the girl in the sandbox. Now, when it came to the three-year-old boy, both Norma and Mary denied those accusations completely and said they didn't know who the boy was and that he must be confused due to the cut on his head. However, when it came to the three girls and that whole incident, Norma did give some insight to police about Mary. According to Norma, her and Mary had been in the sandbox with these three girls when Mary turned to Norma and asked her, quote unquote, what happens if you choke someone? Do they die? End quote. After that, Norma said that Mary proceeded to put both of her hands around the girl's throat and strangle her until she turned purple. Now, Norma said that she tried to get Mary to stop strangling the girl. However, Mary refused to do so until the very last second when Mary pulled herself off of the girl and then proceeded to strangle the other two girls after that. Now, no legal action was taken due to the age of the victims because both Mary and Norma were about 10 years old at this point, so they were both given a warning and release. Now, in the 1960s, Newcastle, which was about a 20-minute drive from where Mary lived, was going through a reconstruction of a lot of different homes there. So because of that, there were a lot of empty 
houses. The reason that this was happening was because they were trying to modernize the area. And so because of that, they had to get people to evacuate their homes in order to do so. So it was basically like an urban renewal. And so because of that, like I said, there were empty lots everywhere. And a lot of the kids in the area took it upon themselves to kind of use this as a new playground. Kids would go into the empty houses and just kind of look around, hang out with their friends. They definitely just took advantage of the opportunity and the situation. And on the day before her 11th birthday, Mary also used this to her advantage. On May 25th, 1968, Mary and four-year-old Martin Brown were upstairs in one of the empty houses located on 85th St. Margaret Road when she strangled him to death. His body was discovered that same day a couple hours later at about 3.30 p.m. by three other children. And when they discovered him, they found him with his arms over his head and he was laying on his back. Now, shortly after the children found Martin, they ran out of the house looking for an adult. And that is when they found a construction worker on the road. Now, the construction worker came into the house and saw Martin and had attempted to perform CPR on him. However, unfortunately, it was unsuccessful. And during the time that the construction worker was performing CPR, Norma and Mary actually showed up at the house and they were quickly told by the construction worker who was giving CPR to go away. Now, as ironic is this construction worker probably told Norma and Mary to go away to prevent traumatizing them from seeing the lifeless body of a four-year-old. However, little did this man know that he had the killer in front of him the entire time. Now, after they were kicked out of the house, Mary and Norma then took it upon themselves to actually walk to Martin's aunt's house. Her name is Rita Finley, and they actually told her that Martin had had an accident and there was blood all over. Now, the following day was Mary's 11th birthday, and her and Norma took a very interesting way to celebrate. Both Norma and Mary had broken into a plant nursery, and they vandalized the entire property. The next day, when the staff arrived to the nursery, they noticed the vandalism and immediately called the police. And when police arrived, they realized that the vandalism that was written on the walls of the plant nursery was actually someone confessing to the murder of Martin Brown. It said things like, quote, I murder so that I may come back. And another read, quote, we did murder Martin Brown. Fuck off. End quote. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. 
Now, regardless of the seriousness of these notes and what they were entailing and what they were confessing, authorities thought that it was just a prank and they didn't take it seriously. Now, two days after Martin's murder, Mary and Norma actually decided to take it upon themselves and go to Martin's mother's home. When they arrived at the home, they knocked on the door and Martin's mother, June, opened the door and Mary took it upon herself to ask her if she could see Martin. Now, of course, Martin's mother had to inform the girls that Martin unfortunately passed away. And that is when Mary looked to her and told her, I know he's dead. I want to see him in his coffin. And after that, Martin's mother, understandably so, slammed the door in Mary and Norma's face. Now, fast forward about two months later on July 31st, 1968. Now, during this time, three-year-old Brian Howe was outside in his front yard just having a normal day. He was playing with his other sibling and Mary and Norma were also playing with the two of them as well. Now, after some time, Brian's sibling went into the house, which left Brian alone with both Mary and Norma, and Brian never made it home that night. After his family realized that he was gone, obviously being only three years old, they grew increasingly worried, and his family, as well as other neighbors in the area, got together and started conducting their very own search. They started their search throughout the neighborhood, and around 11 o'clock p.m., that night is when they found his body and immediately called authorities. When police arrived on the scene, they found that Brian's body had been attempted to be concealed by pieces of grass and his lips were blue and he had several bruises and scratches on his neck. They also found a pair of scissors close to where his feet were and when an autopsy was conducted on Brian, it showed that his cause of death was strangulation and that he had been dead for about seven hours before finding his body. The coroner also figured out that during the killing, Brian's nostrils had been squeezed shut and his throat was gripped at the same time, which completely cut off any air circulation that he had. There were also sections of Brian's hair that had been cut, and along with that, there was something very interesting on Brian's body. The coroner, as well as authorities when discovering his body, found that Brian had an M that was engraved onto his stomach. So this three-year-old boy had been carved, essentially, with the letter M on his stomach, and I think you can figure out what the M stands for. Now, the coroner was actually able to realize pretty quickly that whoever Brian's killer was, it had to be someone on the younger side, and that was due to the amount of force that it took to kill Brian. Obviously, someone like an adult versus a 10-year-old or 11-year-old, those are going to be two very different types of force. The adult, just by nature, is going to have more force than an 11-year-old would. And because of that, the coroner was able to determine that Brian's killer was most likely someone on the younger side. Now, after Brian's body was discovered, the entire community basically went on a manhunt in order to now find his killer because now you had two children who had been murdered within a three-month time period. There were over 100 detectives that were assigned to the investigation and over 1,200 children were questioned because, again, it was presumed that the killer was younger due to the amount of force that was used. Now, all of this, all of the questioning and the detectives 
detectives that were assigned on the case happened within two days after Brian's body was discovered. So authorities really jumped on this one quickly, and it's probably because they realized the severity of the situation. Now, out of the 1,200 children that were questioned, that did also include Mary and Norma. So they were also questioned in regards to this, and both of them admitted that they did see Brian that day, but they never saw him past 12 p.m. Now, Mary actually told police that she remembered seeing Brian with an eight-year-old boy. She said that she saw Brian with this eight-year-old and that this eight-year-old was yelling at him and hitting him. She also told police that this boy had a pair of scissors with him and was covered in grass and weeds as if he had been rolling around in it. And remember, earlier, like I said, Brian's body was attempted to be concealed by someone throwing just grass and weeds on top of him. Now, those were both both details that weren't released to the public. So the fact that Mary was sitting there saying, I saw him with a pair of scissors. I saw him covered in grass and weeds. The red flags really started going off to police because they realized quickly that the average person who wasn't involved in that case wasn't going to know those details. So because of that, authorities were able to figure out that more than likely they had the killer right in front of them. Now, just to make sure they were 100% accurate on this, authorities did track down the boy that Mary was falsely accusing, the eight-year-old boy, and turns out he was at the airport with his parents the entire time and the majority of that day in general, so there was no way that he was responsible for this. Now, two days later, on August 4th, police got a phone call from Norma's parents, and this is where Norma and Mary start to kind of go against each other a little bit. So police get a phone call from Norma's parents that essentially said that Norma was ready to talk a little bit about Brian's death and tell them what she knew and help in the investigation. So police drove over to Norma's house right away. Now, at this point, Norma had told police that on the day of Brian's death, Mary had taken Norma to the spot where she left his body. Norma said that Mary went into detail about how she strangled Brian and also talked to her about how much she enjoyed strangling him. Mary then told Norma that she had marked the M on his chest with a razor blade that she had hid at the crime scene. And to prove to authorities that she was telling the truth, Norma took them to the crime scene and showed them where Mary had hid the razor blades. Along with that, Norma also helped police draw a sketch and was able to point out the specific spots that Brian was injured at, that just someone in the public who wasn't responsible for this or who didn't know anything about it wouldn't have been able to do. Now, the following day on August 5th, police showed up to Mary's house and had confronted her about the inconsistencies in her story, as well as what they now knew, what Norma had told them. And Mary was incredibly defensive and basically told police as an 11-year-old girl that they were trying to brainwash her. But this is where things kind of get a little tricky because after speaking to Mary in the morning, police then went back to Norma's house to talk to her again, but this time her story had changed a little bit. Now, Norma's first story was that Mary had killed Brian without Norma there, and Norma was brought to the scene by Mary after Brian had died, and so she didn't know anything about it 
up until that point. However, the second story that she told police the following day was that instead of Mary bringing her to the body after Brian was already dead, Norma actually placed herself at the crime scene while Brian was still alive. Her second story was that Norma, Mary, and Brian were all together at the crime scene and Mary started strangling Brian. So this time Norma is saying that she was there for the murder. Now, even though Norma said that she was there and she saw Mary do this, she said that once she saw Mary strangling Brian, she got so scared that she ran away. So now Norma is basically placing herself at the crime scene, but said that once she saw what Mary was doing, she ran. Now, two days later after that, on August 7th, Brian's funeral was held and around 200 people attended including Mary. Now, one of the detectives had also attended and saw Mary and noticed something very strange about her behavior. According to the detective, Mary was laughing the entire time while Brian's coffin was being brought into where the funeral was being held. The detective said that Mary was laughing and rubbing her hands together as if she was some evil baby genius. And the detective said that he knew in that moment that he needed to take action or else Mary was going to do this again. So that same day on August 7th at 8 p.m., both girls, Mary and Norma, had been arrested and formally charged with Brian's murder. Now, both girls had very opposite reactions in this. While Norma had burst into tears, she started crying and was incredibly upset, Mary simply looked at authorities while she was being arrested and told them, that's all right by me. Now, after being arrested, Mary was interrogated again, and this time she came out with her own statement. And again, this is where the she said, she said kind of comes in because this time Mary actually puts the blame on Nora. And even though Mary told police that she was there, she was present at the crime scene, she said the actual crime itself was committed by Norma. Now, both girls immediately went under psychological evaluations after the arrest, and the results concluded that Norma was intellectually delayed and had a submissive behavior, while Mary, on the other hand, was prone to mood swings and was more dominant and very defensive. Now, four different psychiatrists examined Mary, and they concluded that she suffered from psychopathic personality disorder. And remember, this is an 11-year-old girl. We're talking an 11-year-old. It's crazy to hear this case and think that this is an 11-year-old that we're talking about, because typically when we talk about cases like this, we're talking about people who are in their 30s to 50s, somewhere around that range. So to hear an 11-year-old is being diagnosed with psychopathic personality disorder, that's, it's, it's crazy. Now, the trial began on December 5th, 1968, and both girls were being charged with both murders. So not only were they being charged with Brian's murder, they were also being charged with Martin's murder. Both pleaded not guilty to their charges, and both had different defense attorneys. Now, on the first day of the trial, the judge denied both girls the right to remain anonymous just because of their age, so the media was allowed to publicize this trial to the fullest extent. Now, on the fifth day of the trial, Norma actually testified in her own defense, and again, she completely denied being the one to do the killing, but what she did say was that she knew of Mary's 
violent history of attacking children. And she also admitted that the two of them had discussed attacking children together. Now, a psychiatrist also took the stand, and this was more so in Norma's defense, because a psychiatrist said that even though Norma was technically 11 years old, they said that she had the mental age of an eight year and 10 month old. So basically saying that instead of being 11 years old as she really is, her mental capacity is that of a basically nine year old. Now then it was Mary's turn to testify and Mary's testimony actually lasted for four hours. Now, Mary completely denied Norma's accusations against her that said that she was the one to do all of the killing. And when it came to Brian's death, Mary claimed that Norma was actually the murderer and that Mary was simply guilty of being an accomplice because she just stood there and watched the entire time. Now, Mary also went into great detail about Brian's murder and said that Norma was suffocating Brian so tightly that Mary could tell that Norma's fingernails were turning white due to the amount of pressure that she was applying. Now, here's where another wild accusation comes in because Norma's mom actually took the stand to testify against Mary. And Norma's mom actually admitted that on one occasion, she had walked in on Mary trying to suffocate Norma's little sister. She said that once she caught Mary doing this, she immediately grabbed her husband who was in the same room. And the only way to get Mary to stop was when her husband shoved Mary in the shoulder to try to move her arm off of her neck. So that example just again shows Mary's violent history and violent behavior. So after that was all said and done, it was time for closing arguments. And Norma's lawyer basically stated that there was no real evidence that Norma was the killer here. He said that it was very clear that Mary was the one who carried out all of these attacks. She definitely was the more dominant out of the duo. And he also said it would have made no sense for Norma to have been the one to mark an M into Brian's body. Now, Mary's lawyer basically blamed her dysfunctional family background for everything and said that she was neglected, she was abused, and because of that, she had a very violent behavior. However, she was not the killer. Now, the trial itself lasted for nine days, and on December 17th, 1968, the jury deliberated for three and a half hours before reaching their verdict. Mary Bell was convicted of manslaughter of both boys, while Norma was actually acquitted of all charges. When the verdicts were read, Norma clapped her hands in excitement, while Mary and her mother, as well as her grandmother, all cried. In the closing statement, the judge described Mary as a dangerous individual and said that she was a grave risk to other children and that steps must be taken to protect the public against her. Now, Mary was sentenced to be detained. However, because of her age, they didn't give her a definite amount of time that she would be serving. It was basically an indefinite sentence of imprisonment that would be monitored as she spent her time there. And Mary was actually transferred multiple times. By the age of 16, she had been at four different juvenile facilities. And in May 1977, Mary actually escaped with another inmate for several days, however, was arrested at the home of one of the men she was staying with at the time. And due to this escape, she got her prison privileges revoked for 28 days. Now, in 1979, after spending 11 years in prison, it was decided that Mary was going to be transferred to an open category 
prison, which essentially meant that she was going to be getting privileges of being outside of the prison to prepare her for being fully released. So she wasn't fully released yet, but they were slowly trying to get her acclimated into the real world again, which is something that we have talked about a lot on here. We've seen a lot of other cases do this, where they give people slowly and surely privileges until they are eventually released again. It's not something that we do in America very often. However, it is a common concept in a lot of other countries. So in November 1979, Mary was hired at a couple different jobs. She worked as a secretary, and then she worked as a waitress at a cafe. All of this was under supervision. However, again, it was just to prepare her for being released. And then when she was 23 years old, in March of 1980, Mary was released completely. She was granted concealment of her identity completely, which allowed her to start a new life essentially. And this included a new name, new passport, new social security, everything. She was also moved to a different country just to give her the greatest chance of normalcy. Now, what we do know about Mary is that four years after her release, she actually had a daughter who knew nothing about her past until she was a teenager because the media ended up finding out where Mary was living and they blasted it all over the news and that is how her daughter figured out who her mother really is. Now after that, Mary and her daughter were transferred to a safe house and then relocated again to a different part of the UK. Now surprisingly enough, it has actually been alleged that Mary has returned to the town that she committed these murders in on multiple different occasions following her release. And it's even said that she lived there at some point. And again, that's all alleged, but it completely goes against the rules of concealing her identity. That's the whole thing. She's not allowed to go back. So if she is going back, then that completely goes against everything. So that is the case of Mary Bell. And I'm going to leave you with a couple of questions because I certainly have a couple of questions and I want to know your guys' opinion. And the first question is, do you think Norma Bell should have been charged the same? Because Norma got acquitted of all charges. She wasn't charged with anything, which some could say is completely fair because we have no evidence to prove that she was really the murderer. However, she was still somewhat of an accomplice. She was present during the time that all of these murders occurred. Now, the second question I have for you is, do you believe that Mary should have only been in prison for a little over 10 years? Because for the murder of two boys, I understand that she's only 11 years old, and that's really where the question comes in. She is only 11 years old. However, as an 11-year-old, you're still capable of gruesome and brutal murders, and you've also been diagnosed with psychopathy personality disorder. So, there's some, something is not right, clearly. So do you believe that she should have been locked up for longer? Do you think she should have been transferred to a rehabilitation center afterwards instead of just kind of letting her be released into society again? And that also leads me to my other question of, do you think she deserves the concealment of her identity? Because again, we have seen this a lot in other cases where they get complete concealment of their true identity and they get to start over. Is it fair, technically, on a moral standpoint, from a moral compass, that Mary is allowed to do that due to the harshness of her crimes? We're not talking about a girl who stole from a convenience store. We're talking about a girl who murdered two young boys in cold blood. So do you think that her identity should be concealed to the public? And those are the questions I'm going to leave you with, and that is today's case. 
All right, you guys, that is going to be all from you today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you are new here, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. Like I said, we post every Wednesday for the podcast and every Thursday on YouTube. I will be back next week with a brand new case for you guys. And until then, stay safe. Bye, guys. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.